Welcome back to another episode of Queer Money. Today we're joined by Elizabeth Thames, better known as Mrs. Frugalwoods from frugalwoods.com. Liz joins us today to tell us about her new book, Meet the Frugalwoods, Achieving Financial Independence Through Simple Living. Liz and her husband were on the traditional path of a high-paced life with high-paced careers and high-paced spending, and they realized they were not happy. So many of us eventually find ourselves in this position. So, as Liz says, they radically changed their lives and went from living in a big city to living in the woods. Liz joins us today to share her story of going from unhappy big spender to happy frugalist. We talk a lot about white and straight privilege and how everyone, everyone could benefit from being even just a little bit more frugal and more wise with our time and money. So, let's get started. There's personal finance for the masses. This is not personal finance for the masses. This is Queer Money. Welcome back to another episode of Queer Money. We are excited to have a longtime FinCon friend of ours join us today. We have the infamous Mrs. Frugalwoods from <laughs> thefrugalwoods.com, also known as Liz Thames. So going forward, we'll call her Liz, but welcome, Mrs. Frugalwoods. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we're excited to have you for two reasons. One, you have a new book coming out, and we'd love the angle. Your whole business is focused on the frugal lifestyle, which doesn't mean the poor lifestyle. So we'll talk about that a little bit. But the frugal lifestyle, we're also going to talk a little bit about something that kind of rubs our community maybe a little bit the wrong way. And that's the idea of privilege. So we'll talk a little bit about that as well. So shortly, you will be publishing Meet the Frugal Woods, Achieving Financial Independence Through Simple Living. What made you decide to do a sadistic thing like write a book? (laughs) (laughs) What a great question. (laughs) So I've been writing my blog, Frugal Woods, for about four years now. And HarperCollins came to me a couple years ago and said, do you want to write a book? And I said, of course, that sounds like a wonderful way to use my time. (laughs) And it really was a transformative experience for me as a writer and for the work that I do in advancing financial literacy and this transformative power of frugality. So I am very glad I did it, although it is, I will say, quite an undertaking. (laughs) And (laughs) it's wonderful, though, to be able to spread this message to hopefully a broader audience, because I don't think we have a lot of examples in our culture of frugality being a good thing and really being a positive force in our lives. So much of what we hear about is focused on consumption and is focused on what we can buy and how we can attain more and more. And what I talk a lot about is the simplicity and the beauty of less. That's awesome. So that's a good foray into my next questions. Do you mind giving our listeners a bit of your story and what your background is and how you became Mrs. Frugalwoods, living in the woods? (laughs) (laughs) So I have not always lived in the woods. I actually, (laughs) my first job out of college was in New York City. And from there, my husband and I went to Cambridge, Massachusetts, outside of Boston. We then lived in Washington, D.C. We then came back to Cambridge, Mass, and really lived a very typical city life. So we both worked pretty standard nine to five white collar career track jobs and enjoyed life in you know these really expensive urban corridors in the Northeast. But what we realized in 2014 is that we were deeply unfulfilled. And this came about as a recognition that we were not using our time or our money in the most valuable ways. 
both of those things were going largely in service of our jobs. And we were spending, you know, 40, 50, 60, 70 hours a week in cubicles under fluorescent lights in mm. office buildings. Yay, and <laughs> Yay! you can see all my wrinkles. Stop. <laughs> so in 2014, we were both 30 and we sat down and we said, you know, if we don't radically change something, this is what we'll be doing for the next 30, 40, 50 years? Is that really what we want? Is that what we want to say we've done with our time on earth? I mean, not to be true dramatic, but, but truly, <laughs> you know, this was kind of like a midlife crisis for us of recognizing that we needed to make a radical change in how we were using our time and our money. And so at that point, we launched this plan to move to a homestead in the woods of Vermont because my husband asked, when are you happiest? And I said, oh, it's when I'm hiking in the woods. He said, me too. And I said, but we can't hike, you know, all day, every day. That's not really a tenable thing to do with your life. <laughs> but we realized we could move out of the city and live in nature and really find the peace of a simpler life. And so we reached financial independence in 2016 and we moved out here to our 66 acre homestead. We rented out a home that we own in Cambridge, Mass. And we are now just loving life out here. And we have a two-year-old daughter and another daughter who will be born very soon. Oh, congratulations. Yeah. That's awesome. So you brought up an interesting point. It's interesting and fascinating and sad how much money and time we waste to have a job. Right. Yes. Especially if you're in corporate America and it sounds like you know, you're in DC and New York City. So you have to have the right clothing. You have to travel into and out of the cities. You have to do the happy hours and the dinners and you spend a lot of money maintaining that job to sit in a yeah. cubicle for at least 40 hours a week and not to mention the travel to and from work. Right. Yes. Especially when you're in certain careers, it seems like it just kind of ratchets itself up. You get a better paying job. So you need to have better clothing. You have, need to have a nicer car. You need to live closer to work, which oftentimes means you're buying a more expensive home. And all of that just continues to feed this need. But at the same time, when you're not at work, you want to make the most of your life. And when you have such a limited amount of time, oftentimes the easiest way to make the most of your time is to spend a lot of money. <laughs> Go big. Right. right. And so it just becomes this vicious cycle of, I want to feel good while I'm not working, so I'm going to spend, but then I've got to work so I can spend. And it just... Absolutely. Absolutely. I came across that concept first in the book, Your Money or Your Life. They do this little exercise where you're supposed to tally up how much you spend on work every week. And I was like, oh, that's <laughs> really terrifying. Yeah. Because it's, you know, we don't think about lunches, coffees, everything else that you mentioned, the commute, all of that in service of this job. So mm -hmm. you're paying. And then if you have kids, daycare, don't get me started, you oh, know, yeah. how much you're paying for daycare. And so my husband and I said, you know what, let's just step out of that loop entirely and reimagine our lives. So if we didn't have jobs, right, and we didn't need to pay sort of all of these support services and all of these fringe things in order to support those jobs, how little could we live on every year? And what would we do with our time? And I think it's really important if you are thinking about quitting your job that you have to be going to something. You can't just quit your job and say, great, I'm going to sit on the couch. Like that might be fun for a week, but you know, you really need to identify. Aspire for more, please. <laughs> you need to aspire for more. Yes, you need to do more. Right. You know, what do you want to do with your life? How would you use your time? 
if you didn't need your paycheck. And that's kind of the crux of what the book asks us to grapple with. I think it's fascinating that you started having this discussion, both of you, at the age of 30. David David and I were only kicking our social lives into high gear at the age of 30. And granted, you know, the LGBT community, gay men, maybe at that time, you know, we kind of matured a little bit slower. But wow, at the age of 30, the last thing I was thinking about was dialing it back. I think it's amazing. And then the fact that you had the courage to say, let's get radical about it. I mean, you weren't just saying, let's cut out wine once a week. It's like, let's get radical and completely change our lives. Right. To be clear, I never did cut out wine. So, you know, like, <laughs> and this is why we're friends. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I switched to box wine. <laughs> Yeah, I think, you know, I think for us, it was we'd been working these jobs for close to 10 years. And we were still waiting for that happiness and that fulfillment to kick in. And we still felt so frustrated and so beaten down at the end of the day. And we both said, this is not getting better. This is getting worse. And we were managers. So we were taking on more responsibility. And I didn't really see a pathway for this to be the fulfilling life that we had envisioned when we were, you know, 22 and coming out of college. So it was very much that recognition of, you know what, let's do something right now before we have kids, before we're more ingrained in our community and before we have more responsibilities, let's make that change now. That's awesome. It's interesting. Last night, John and I were at dinner with two other men who live in our building. And we talked about this idea of the dream life. And most people, because of the careers that they have, they have this vision of the dream life is being able to sit around and do nothing or lay on the beach all day or have cocktails with their friends. But we kind of came to the conclusion that that kind of dream life only lasts for so long and then it gets boring. And I think that your idea of finding what really makes you happy driving to the lowest common denominator of what can I do almost on a daily basis that's going to make my life happy gets back to that point of purpose Mm -hmm. and fulfillment. And so many people in the world today go to a job five to seven days a week and they have nothing like that in their job or in their lives. But we're told that's what makes us happy. Right. That's going to make you happy. Go to college. Everybody has to go to college. Yep. Like we said last night, in two generations, it became almost a rite of passage to go to college. You have to go. And then you go to college and you're supposed to get these corporate careers and that's happiness. Then at some point, most of us, some of us realize that's not exactly what we want. Right. And happiness, as you mentioned, happiness for many people has been tied to this idea of consumerism. Mm -hmm. You know, I think what you find with that too is that you can keep ratcheting up your spending. And I'm very cognizant that at a certain threshold, your life is better if you have more money. You know, when I was living in Brooklyn and did not have a washer dryer in my apartment, that's awful. Like carrying your laundry down three flights of stairs and to the laundromat, that is not fun. So when I was able to have an apartment with a washer dryer, you know, there was a pretty big increase in my quality of life. And then same thing with owning a car, right? So walking to the grocery store versus driving to the grocery store, transformational to be able to drive to the grocery (laughs) store. I mean, truly. And so it's, you know, you do have these like sort of commensurate improvements with spending. However, it really plateaus. And that's what we found. We were spending as much money as we wanted to, you know, dining out, buying clothes, fancy haircuts. We were total hipsters. And you just stop deriving that same level of happiness from your spending. And you can just keep spending more and more and more, but you're never actually going to get to fulfillment because there's always more to buy and more to consume. And you're not really going to derive contentment from material goods. And we all know that, but we do it anyway. 
And right. so I think it's, you have to find that tipping point. Like, okay, I have a washer dryer. I have a car. You know, I have access to healthcare. I have access to food and a, a, you know, a safe environment. But then at a certain point, you cross over that hierarchy of needs and the spending just becomes pointless. I don't know if it's Les Brown or Brian Tracy, but one of them says that everybody believes that getting rich is not going to make them happy, but they all want to try to figure it out on their own. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> we all go about this process of trying to get rich because we innately think, oh, we'll all be different. It'll make me happy. <laughs> but, right. And you know, and what I will say, like financial security and financial independence, I do think is a driver of happiness when you don't have to worry about money. That's incredibly liberating. But you know, the key for me is that I derive happiness from not spending my money, but knowing that it's there for me if I need it. And it's there to support how I want to use my time. At the same time, Liz, I have to commend you. When I read the introduction to your book, as you listen to this, if you don't do anything but just read the introduction to her book, you will be amazed at how well-written and well-thought-out it is. And you cover this whole idea of privilege. I like that. You know, here we sit here and talk about a washer and dryer and a car and financial security. And there are People who may be listening right now who are saying, well, you guys sound like a bunch of upper class privileged people. Maybe can you just talk a little bit about how that has impacted your decision to become more frugal in your life? Yes. So thank you for mentioning that. It's really important for me in my work that I do acknowledge the privilege that I have because I see privilege as coursing through my life from the very beginning. I was born to a family with stable parents. I had a wonderful childhood. Our electricity was never turned off. We were never evicted. We had plenty to eat. You know, it was just a very wonderful middle class life. I went to great public schools. I went to a great public university. And my husband had very much the same privileges growing up. So from the beginning, I like to say from the first day in the hospital, my husband and I were already more advantaged than so many other people through nothing that we did, but through our circumstances. And so while I think it's easy to say, oh, you know, I've made all these great decisions and saved all this money, and that's why I'm financially independent. I don't believe that. I think making good decisions is one part of it, but a huge part of it is the inherent privilege that I've had throughout my life. So I try to be very cognizant of that because I think it's easy when you're talking about your own experience to say, oh, anyone else could do this. Anyone could replicate this. And I don't think that necessarily holds true. Thinking about that really came to the fore for me when I lived in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. This was my first job after college. So I was 22 and I worked for AmeriCorps and they gave me a quote unquote salary of $10,000 for the year. And I saved $2,000 of it. And as part of AmeriCorps, I had access to food stamps and I had a transit pass paid for. And I lived in a very high poverty neighborhood. And at first I thought, oh, okay, I'm sort of struggling alongside these people. But I had some experiences with my neighbors that I talk about extensively in the book where I came to realize, oh no, I am profoundly privileged. I don't live in generational poverty. I don't live in an environment where I don't see a way out, where I don't have the education and the family and financial backing to transcend this environment. And I came to understand the role of privilege in a very visceral way at that time. And so I try to allow that to guide me and to keep that at the front of my mind. And it's one of the things that I think gives me a mindset of gratitude. So people often talk about how, oh, frugality is a 
source of deprivation. You know, you're not doing the things you want to do. I see it as a source of abundance. And I'm grateful every day for all the things I have. I have everything I need, everything I want. So to see frugality as deprivation, I think is very myopic. So having that background has really let me view my life as truly abundant, even with very low spending. Great. Thank Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for acknowledging that. I think it's incumbent upon those of us who are privileged to acknowledge that and to respect that. But I don't think that that means that we can't also help and reach out to those who could use the help. I think that oftentimes people use the word privilege in a negative context. I think that's often the case because they look at individuals who they perceive as having privilege and not doing anything with it. Like you said, we are inherently born with privileges. The fact that we live in the United States is a huge privilege. The fact that we live in Mm -hmm. a country where we have the freedoms that we do. As you mentioned, being born into a middle-class white family, I'm the same. You know, so I can't offload those privileges for sure. But what I can do is I can use those privileges as best I can to be a good steward of my life and help other people who don't have the privileges that I have. Absolutely. And even just to have that awareness and that level of empathy that I think is sometimes so lacking in, you know, polarizing conversations. Mm -hmm. You also bring up in your book the idea of heterosexual privilege, which I don't think I've heard all that much. When I read it, it made sense that there probably is privilege with being heterosexual, fitting the, I guess, the straight white stereotypical norm probably Mm -hmm. is a little bit easier. Would you mind expanding on that a little bit, please? So I think for me, that understanding really came about because I went to school in Kansas. Kansas is not a very progressive state, to put it mildly. And (laughs) I think, you know, something that my husband and I realized is that, gosh, you know, everyone is really nice to us and it's a really friendly place to be. And we can drive way out into the country in Kansas and have great interactions with people. And my husband said, yes, but you understand that's because we're white and we're straight we fit their idea of what a person should be. And I, oh, (laughs) hadn't thought about it like that before. If we presented ourselves or were or embodied something different, that we probably would not have the same reception. And so that kind of gave me this basis of understanding that that I am profoundly privileged through being straight and through being white. And so that was just kind of another layer of understanding that I try to have in my interactions. And, you know, it's impossible for me to quantify all the ways in which this privilege has impacted me, but I certainly see it as an element Mm -hmm. of the successes that I've enjoyed. And, you know, it was not difficult for me in job interviews, for example. It was not difficult for me in conversations about advancing in my career. We just interviewed a woman who's a board of directors for Ohio Business Competes. They're based out of Ohio, and they're trying to change the discriminatory laws against LGBT people in the state of Ohio at the state level by collating businesses to help support the change and not just focusing on the representatives. And she told us a story about how this transgender woman went through a couple of phone interviews. Everything was going great for this particular interview. She finally crossed the hurdle and made it into the face-to-face interview. And when she went into the face-to-face interview, she was told immediately that the job was no longer available. Mm -hmm. It's not 100% certain, but there's a pretty strong indication that the idea was that, oh, you're a transgender woman and you don't fit here. Mm -hmm. And there, yeah. And then there are studies where, you know, they swap out names on resumes Mm -hmm. and they receive different treatment based on the ethnic origin or the gender of the name. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
I was just going to say, I, I remember during that conversation, she did say that it was reference to not getting the job was that we don't have a job available for someone like you. And oh. so the point was being made that it was who they were, what they looked like that made them not available for the job. And so, like you said, there is this privilege that we have as a white man, I can, and I did for quite a while, hide behind the fact that people might presume that I was straight. There are some people who cannot hide behind that. There is nothing to hide, whether it's their ethnicity or their gender or their perceived gender. And so there is that hurdle that we're still trying to overcome in society, even though many people would like to believe that since marriage equality passed <laughs> in 2015, everything is great and fine for everybody in the LGBT community. <laughs> everything is awesome, like they said in yeah. those movie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but no, I think very clearly, you know, looking at the national debate, there's a lot of work still to be done. And yeah, we cannot consider that to be a done deal. And, you know, going back to finance, because we love talking about money, another element of this are all of the people who do not have access to banking services. You know, the compounding issues of not having a checking account, not having any access to credit, things like predatory payday loan services. You know, you see people trapped in a cycle of being financially disadvantaged because of the services and the programs that are not available to them. Right. Right. That's a huge issue. And it's just very, if you've got to go to payday loans to cash out your paycheck that you get once a week or once every other week, and they skim a huge percentage off the top, it's just hard for you to stay ahead, right? even as you're working. So I think it's great that you've acknowledged the privilege and that we're talking about it now. It's wonderful that it's in your book, but I can't help but think, regardless of how advantaged or disadvantaged someone might be, there's got to be some value that they can get from your book. How can you use that privilege for good? So my goal with the book is to get people to question how they're using those two precious resources, time and money. And my belief is that anywhere along the frugality continuum, you can derive a benefit from being more financially secure and financially stable. And so, you know, my husband and I at one point were saving over 80% of our take home. That's not going to be possible unless you have an income of a certain level. However, there are savings to be had, even going from a 0% savings rate to a 5% savings rate, you're going to see advantages and benefits come to pass in your life. And so I think finding a way to make it work for you, you know, there is no one size fits all way to manage your money, but there are tenets and principles that you can enshrine. And I think the overarching idea with frugality is that it's not just about saving money. It's really about holistically changing how you view the world and how you view what a need is and what a want is and how much stuff you need in your life and how many things you need to buy in order to be happy. Ultimately, you know, I think the goal then is for people to work on projects that they're passionate about. And what that does is it means you're working on things that are going to deliver the greatest benefit to other people. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're doing a job that you absolutely love, your work product is so much better than if you're sort of working in a cubicle on a job that you don't really care about. Mm -hmm. And so I think if you can find that thing that you're passionate about and whether you're paid for it or not, if you can pursue that, you're going to have a greater impact. And I think that's how you can then sort of use your privilege for good. I love that you say that. We're the debt-free guys and we advocate for people to be debt-free, but that's not the point of the message. The point of the message of, of living debt-free is that if you're consumed with debt, you can't be your fullest, best self. And that 
harms you, that harms society because you're here for a purpose. When you can be financially independent and you can do your best work, be your best self, that helps everybody. Our very first podcast was about coming out at work and should you come out at work. And the discussion is very different depending on who you are and where you live in the country. But at the same time, I'll never forget our mentor, Jay Allen, who was on the podcast. What he said to us was that when you're at work and you're not out, you're using your energy to hide who you are. And when I employ you, I expect to use 100% of your energy on the job. And as John just mentioned, when we are in debt, whether we're hiding it from people or not, when it strains our lives, then we are distracted. We're distracted from being able to give back to our community, distracted from being able to spend time with the ones that we love. And it can be such a distraction to some people that it actually keeps them in a level of poverty or low income that they never see themselves as ever having the ability to succeed. Mm-hmm. It kind of reminds me, John and I did just recently sell our condo and moved away from where we were living. And shortly before that, a building across the street from us was built, a brand new building, and it was designed for not necessarily low income, but income adjusted. Right, income adjusted. And I remember seeing individuals who were moving into the building and they drove very nice cars, <laughs> nicer cars than what we had. It surprised me a little bit, but I have to remember that as we talked about at the very beginning, even people who have a very low income may be using that income to seek some sort of happiness or fulfillment in the things that they're buying. Like we had talked about earlier, as you mentioned, whether it's 1% or 5%, if you can save some portion of your income, you start to get yourself on a success path. Right. And I think it's very much a question of thinking about the long term too, and recognizing that, you know, over time, small amounts saved equal great amounts, especially if you invest that money. And so I think it can be hard when you're looking at savings because you say, well, this is only $50 a month. You <laughs> Don't know, look this, at savings. Is just, <laughs> this is not a huge amount of money that I'm saving. But if you calculate that out over a year or two years, and then you think about if you invested that money instead, you can be looking at, you know, high five and six figures of return on that investment over many decades. Mm-hmm. And so it's remembering that kind of holistic mentality that it's not $50 saved this month, it's saved for the rest of your life and all the things that you could do with that money. Exactly. And it's easier than ever to become an investor. I mean, there are online investment firms that are reputable where you can open low dollar investment accounts. You can get yourself into no cost or low cost exchange traded funds that have low operating expenses. And so it's so much easier today to start. So yeah, don't just look at that savings account with that measly interest. Rate. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> but you know, right. it might take a month or two or maybe even you know six months until you, you have enough money, but it's much easier to attain today than ever. Do you see a distinction between the frugal lifestyle and the minimalist lifestyle? And if so, how? I did at first. You know, in our initial month of extreme frugality, this was when we decided, okay, we're going to reach financial independence, save as much as we can. It was really all about saving money. It was all about that bottom line. Over time, though, as we've enshrined frugality, really just as our worldview, it's just what we do. I now see it as minimalism. I see it as environmentalism, sustainable living. I see it as a lower stress, lower anxiety way of life. I see it as 
vastly improving our marriage and, you know, strengthening the relationship that I have with my husband, strengthening our family. I see that there are all these sort of tertiary benefits of frugality. I'm more involved in my community. I have a lot more friends. I'm more deeply engaged with the things that are going on around me because I have so much more time and I have so much more money. And I've really given myself those gifts by shedding in many ways the stuff and the mental stress. So I see the minimalism. For me, it comes to bear in our home. Some people would look at our house and say it's a little bit sparse. Um, We have some rooms with very little furniture, but for us, it's very simple. We really enjoy knowing where everything is, being able to clean up pretty quickly. And we have a very large home, so I don't want to hide that fact. We have a four-bedroom house, but it is populated with a lot less stuff. We have so much less spending, right? So we're bringing in so many fewer things. We're consuming so much less. And there's so much mental minimalism and mental simplicity and clarity really that comes from this, that it's every day we try to focus on our highest and best priorities. And we really don't do stuff that we don't enjoy doing, which sounds a little bit ridiculous. But for us, it's kind of this idea of smoothing out the happiness curve. So in the past, in the city, we had these like huge spikes of, you know, really expensive dinners out with like James Beard award-winning chefs, Mm. fabulous dinners, you know, went out for drinks afterwards. I mean, we just spent so much money. (laughs) And then Monday comes, right? And you have this huge crash of, okay, I'm back in this gray cubicle. My cubicles (laughs) were always gray. I don't know. You know, so you you have this plummet and then you have another spike because you go get your hair done and that's just like fantastic. And they bring you tea and they rub your shoulders, but you again have these crashes. And so what we try to do is really smooth out that graph. So it's not like we're deliriously happy every day because also we have a toddler. So there's, there's a lot of parenting here. But but the idea is just like we live the life we want to live every single day. And we don't find that we need like those huge expensive influxes in order to really make us happy. I love that phrase, the happiness curve, smooth out the happiness curve. Did you trademark that? (laughs) No, I do have a post that I wrote and it's also a chapter in the book because I, this is like a realization for me. I was like, oh, that's what we did because we used to work for the weekend. And for us now, we're like, oh, what day is it? Oh, I think it's Saturday. You know, so it's we we really kind of try to keep it constant. And that goes back to David's point earlier. We would ebb and flow through these quiet periods, and then we'd have to go and party hard, or or go on an extravagant vacation to make up for all those days of going through the grind. If you can smooth out your happiness curve. You don't have to satiate yourself with that over the board, over the top stuff, which is great segue into my next question. So many in the LGBT community, especially gay men, have this expectation that we need to live these fabulous lives. We need to have amazing cars and amazing travel. We don't have kids. We've got dual incomes. There is this sort of carpe diem mentality in our community, whether we know it or not, sort of as a hangover from the AIDS crisis. So we're all trying to just live that sort of TV gay cliche lifestyle. What can our community learn from a straight frugal couple? (laughs) (laughs) See, if you saw like what I was wearing right now in the room, you might not want to take my advice. (laughs) Yeah, we're not so fabulous right now either. (laughs) (laughs) But but (laughs) I'm really pregnant. Okay, my maternity clothes are pretty bad. I mean, we lived in the city. We very much lived what we thought was a, a pretty fantastic life. 
again, I, I really think it's a question of, is that bringing you happiness? And for us, we had to go through that. I call it the rumspringa of spending because we had to go through this sort of hedonistic period of, yeah, spend all the money you want to spend and see how you feel about it. So I think doing that honest accounting of, are these things actually delivering the benefits that I hoped they would? Is my life transformatively better because of the money I'm spending? Or am I just looking for the next thing to buy? And I think if you can have that recognition, it becomes a lot easier to reduce your spending. And it also becomes easier when you have a bigger goal. If your only goal is to buy more stuff, that's not really a tenable way of approaching your money. But if your goal is, you know, I really want to sail around the world. That's what I want to do. I think when you can make experiences and use of time your goal, it becomes a lot easier to let go of short-term expenditures. And it becomes also a question of who are you living your life for? And I, throughout my 20s, was 100% living for other people. I was doing what I thought I should do what I thought I was supposed to do, you know, I had really good grades, got good jobs, just did well. And that's because I was told by society that I was supposed to do that. That did not make me happy. <laughs> and so yeah. I am now doing, you know, a thing that society is like, what on earth are you doing? <laughs> but what do I care? You know, the only person who cares how <laughs> you that. live your, I mean, truly, the only person who cares how you live your life is you. I mean, when you're 90, and reflecting back on your life, are you really going to remember what kind of cars you drove or how many shoes you had? It's a question of what you want your life to represent. So imagine yourself as an older person. I do this all the time and think, what do I want to say that I've accomplished and that I've achieved? You might have Absolutely. crossed the line at shoes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do, I do own like very expensive leather boots that I bought. Oh, in nice. My <laughs> hedonistic period, which I do still wear. <laughs> right. But I love what you're saying because it's in line with a lot of the messaging that David and I have. In fact, one of the first steps in our process to become debt-free is to sit down and think about what are your hopes and dreams? Not what are your mom and dad's hopes and dreams for you? What are your friends' hopes and dreams for you? Not even what your spouse's hopes and dreams are for you, but what is it that you want out of life? And I think it kind of addresses that when you can focus on the one or two or the small handful of things that are most important to you, you realize that there's so many other things that are not. And very often we're spending our money on the things that are not the most important thing to us. And it's kind of like what Siren Kierkegaard said about the tyranny of choices. You have too many choices. Eliminate those choices by figuring out what is it that you want most and focus on that. If it is sailing around the world, then you've got your goal. You've got to save your money, buy a boat, learn how to sail and right. set sail. Right. right. And I think there's this idea too that as you just said, that more choices make us happier, but behavioral economists have documented that is not true. More choices actually decrease our happiness because we're totally overwhelmed. Right. And so if you just are going to buy the cheapest thing in the store, let me tell you, your choices are much more limited. <laughs> You're out of there a lot faster. <laughs> it's letting go of these kind of conventional thoughts that actually don't come to bear. So we were at Target a couple of years ago, and I went to get shampoo, and it was the first time I realized that they actually had now, there's a whole section of just men's shampoo. I didn't know that there needed to be different kinds of shampoo. Uh, yeah. Well, whatever, that's fine. I, go, I figured they probably had more manly kind of sense. Even with just the men's shampoo, there were so many options to choose from. I walked away, and I didn't end up buying any shampoo because it was just too much. <laughs> I was like... <laughs> But I love your strategy. Just get the cheapest one. Who cares? Your, yeah. your hair we will be just clean. buy like 
the huge shampoo from the BJ's warehouse store. You know, it's, it's like a huge, and I think it's herbal essences that is the cheapest. So it's kind of flowery, but my husband's like, Ooh, I like this. It smells nice. so Reminds just, him of the smell of you. Huh? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Your life, you know? right. If you don't know, I'm bald. So I don't know what the, what the hell the choice is all about, but I was more concerned about David's hair. Right. <laughs> this does bring up a good point because I think a lot of people think that the frugal lifestyle is restrictive and that you're not having fun and that it's not enjoyable. Maybe share with us a funny circumstance or funny story about something that you and your husband did that was part of the fact that you were living a frugal lifestyle, but at the same time shows how enjoyable it can really be. Oh, I have so many examples of this. And, you know, the first thing I like to say is that if you are trying out a frugal life and you're miserable, then you're doing it wrong. So, you know, I said earlier in jest that I didn't give up wine, but that's really true. And we didn't give up craft beer either. We love really good beer. Like, I'm not going to buy cheap beer. You know, life is too short. There's just no point in doing that. So, I think Ben Franklin said that too. <laughs> life is short. Drink good beer. <laughs> so, you know, you have to spend on the things that deliver a high return on your investment. And so what I recommend people doing, if you want to try out frugality, and I have a free challenge on Frugal Woods called the Uber Frugal Month that you can do that tracks all the steps that my husband Nate and I took to get our savings right up so high. And what you have to do is cut everything out of your budget. So do not spend on anything that is not necessary for your survival on earth and see how that feels. And then you can add back in the things like craft beer and the things that you really do enjoy and that you really do want to spend your money on. And the difference is that it's a very conscious, considered, strategic decision to spend money. So, you know, our choice to buy really pretty expensive beer is a very conscious choice. We're aware that that's like a line item in our budget every month. So making those conscious decisions and then recognizing the stuff that you can just let go of. So we cut each other's hair at home, which everybody just like cringes about. Oh my gosh, you cut your hair at home. Like, yes. <laughs> so the first time that Nate was going to cut my hair, we were both pretty nervous. <laughs> I think he was like, oh, I bet. Divorce. He was like, would you like to have some wine before I do it? Like, I don't want wine. I'm going to watch you every time. <laughs> okay. But in truth, it's completely fine. And it's one of those things that we sort of tell ourselves, I could never cut my own hair because it's going to look terrible. And then you try it and you realize this is totally fine. <laughs> so I had been spending, I think it was about $120 on haircuts. I mean, and they looked great. It looked really good. Mm -hmm. But how is that worth it in my life? Do I actually care that much about my hair? I really don't. Half the time it's in a ponytail anyway. You know, what is the point of spending this money? And so by having Nate cut my hair, the first time was nerve wracking. Now it's actually a fun thing that we do together. You know, I cut his hair. We have nice conversations. It's a nice time for us to hang out, spend time together. It has strengthened our trust in one another and it really makes us partners in every sense. I think a lot of times our modern economy sort of takes us away from the strengths of our partner because we're paying someone else to cook our meals and someone else to cut our hair, wash our car, mm -hmm. fix our tractor. That may only be relevant for me. <laughs> but, you know, when you start to rely on your partner, you recognize all of their skills and you start to, we start to really respect each other even more because it's, wow, I didn't know you can do that. That's incredible that you've taught yourself how to do that. 
And my husband is the cook in our house. I don't cook at all. He gets nervous when I'm in the kitchen. He, he pops over. He's like, do you need something? Would you like me to fix you a snack? I'm like, I'm Please just, don't be here. I'm like, I'm just making some coffee. He's like, oh, I'll make it for you. You know, he has become a really proficient cook and he's making all this Korean and Thai food right now. And it's really neat to see his skills flourish and develop in that nice. area. Back on the haircut thing, because I have to point this out too. In addition to saving money, this saves so much time because I was spending, you know, three hours maybe to call, make the appointment, walk to the salon, sit there, get my hair done, walk back home. That's a lot of time. It now takes us, I think it's 13 minutes for him to cut my hair. (laughs) (laughs) About as long to do his. So, you know, just the savings on time, money, plus you get to spend time together. For me, it's just a total no brainer. I imagine that it's a whole different level of intimacy when your partner is standing so close to your eyes with scissors. <laughs> yeah, yeah it is. it's just, I don't know, like it's fun too to think like this is a skill that we now have, you yeah. know, and we extrapolate that out across like every part of our lives. My husband taught himself how to do plumbing, so he replumbed part of our house. I taught myself how to make bread, so I make all of our bread. Oh, so it's kind of beer you know, and bread. I'm coming over. <laughs> in a bread machine, like it's the easiest thing in the world. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so tell us more about your book. Where can our listeners find more out about your book? Where can they buy it? All that good stuff. The book is Meet the Frugal Woods: Achieving Financial Independence Through Simple Living, and it's published by Harper Collins. It comes out March sixth. You can buy it wherever books are sold. So Amazon, Barnes and Noble, your local bookstore, you can request that your public library order it. Please do that. (laughs) If you order the book by March 13th, you can get a free signed book plate from me. And I have the details on frugalwoods.com about how you can do that. And then you can find me pretty much anywhere online, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at Frugal Woods. I love that. That's awesome. We'll include links to the book plate in our show notes as well. Could you tell us a little bit more? You mentioned earlier the Uber Frugal Month Challenge. That's also on your website? Yes. So this is a free 31-day challenge. It is not painful, I promise. (laughs) And (laughs) the goal of this is to get you to really do a wholesale reckoning of how you're using your money. So it takes you through all the steps that Nate and I followed in ingraining extreme frugality into our lives. And the first question you'll be happy to know is not about money. It's about what do you want to do with your life? So you can sign up for that on frugalwoods.com. That's awesome. Definitely check that out. It reminds me a lot of a book that David and I read a couple years ago and and we followed. It's called The Conscious Cleanse. And what you do is you restrict your diet for 30 days. You take out any sort of food that might produce any kind of allergy, even allergies that you're not even aware that you have. And then you slowly incorporate those potentially allergen foods into your diet to see how it affects you, if at all. It sounds like that's what you're proposing here. Take out all the spending, cut it back, and then figure out what can you survive without, and then start to incorporate back into your life what is most important, such as beer and bread. Exactly. (laughs) Yes, beer and bread. And it's really neat, too, because then you see that dollar amount. You're face-to-face with the dollar amount that you could be saving every month. And that's pretty revelatory for most people. It certainly was for me. Yeah, no doubt. Well, thank you so much for coming on our show. Best of luck with the book. It sounds very well written. And I think regardless of where you are in your financial journey, uh, your socioeconomic status, there's certainly something that you're going to be able to get from Liz's book. And you can also check out more information about her and her life and her family at frugalwoods.com. Thank you so much for joining us, Liz. Thank Thank you. you for having me. 
Thank you, Liz, for sharing your story. It was fun and informative to learn all about your journey. For a community that often lives fabulously broke, there was a ton of wisdom in what you shared. To our audience, please look out for Meet the Frugal Woods, Achieving Financial Independence Through Simple Living from HarperCollins coming March 6, 2018, and learn more about Liz and her ever-growing family at frugalwoods.com. If you like this or any other episode of Queer Money, please help us reach more LGBT people by liking, commenting, and sharing Queer Money on iTunes. Now, I need to go get myself some beer and bread. See you next time. Okay. We just serviced you. Now you get to service us by subscribing to this podcast on iTunes and signing up for the Queer Money Lifestyle Newsletter at queer.money. Well, I'm not really gay. (laughs) (laughs) Would help me if I had a personal chef made all all my healthy meals for me. Right. So instead, I'll have a Snickers tonight for dinner. (laughs) (laughs) The other end, I like the butts, so... (laughs) Uh,